This podcast and the following message are brought to you by Smart Pixel. Turn your website's anonymous visitors into engaged customers. SmartPixel turns your anonymous website visitors into fully identified first-party consumer data. When this match and identification takes place, SmartPixel can return up to 300 attributes on the consumer. You get name, postal address, email, gender, and date of birth, plus more specific details like home ownership, vehicle ownership, political party affiliation, presence of children in the household, and many more. SmartPixel. Real-time information about your website visitors, easy to install, and fully GDPR and CCPA compliant. Find out more by going to autoconverse.com forward slash smartpixel. That's www.autoconverse.com forward slash S-M-A-R-T-P-I-X-L. And thank you. To pass a bill to prohibit the purchase of these lands, including lands near military bases, by China and other countries of concern. And yes, there's the danger of having this land misused for intelligence or military purposes, but put that aside. We saw what happened with COVID when almost all this stuff was made in China. Why would you want them to be involved in our own food supply and our chain, uh, supply chain here in the United States? They've got enough power over this uh, throughout the, the globe, and we need to work on more on reshoring a lot of our own manufacturing capacity, uh, working with other countries that are less hostile to us, because China pretty much had us and we were at their mercy about whether we were going to get a lot of these important medical supplies. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis explaining the need for a bill to restrict rogue states such as China from buying American real estate assets, specifically businesses tied to the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. In 2019, the U.S. Department of Agriculture said that Chinese-linked entities owned at least 192,000 acres of farmland worth more than $1.9 billion. But a more recent report by the National Association of Realtors found that Chinese real estate investors spent $6.1 billion on American real estate over a 12-month period that ended in March, more than any other group of foreigners. Florida accounted for 24% of all international real estate purchases in the U.S., while California ranked second with 11%. What does this have to do with mobility tech and connectivity? The real estate that the CCP is buying is farmland, which Bill Gates has been buying as well. And farmland is useful for generating solar power. And solar power is becoming increasingly more necessary as global corporate interests demean the fossil fuel industry and praise the coming of electric vehicles and renewable energy. As we will see later in the show, he who controls the resources controls the world. From Autoburst Media, this is Autoconverse. Hey, we got a good show lined up for you today. Oh, well, I'm a Game of Thrones nut, so that's, that's, that's my jam. The robots are listening. The robots are listening. All right, welcome to another episode of the Autoconverse podcast, where we explore people, ideas, and technologies that influence how we are connected and the way we get around. I am Ryan Girardi. It's great to be here with you, as always. So I have a question for you. 
Can you imagine the demand for electricity as electric vehicles become the norm? Right now, EV adoption in the U.S. is approaching 5%. And as we reported recently, 5% is a significant number. Historically, the few countries which have already surpassed that number also saw a sharp increase in their adoption rates of EVs. Speculating the increase, has anyone been thinking about what this will do to demand for electricity? I'm sure that many are, especially those who will gain as a result. And that certainly is not you, the consumer. Looking at the cost for electricity over the last 10 years, you will see on average a 7 to 10% increase. If that rhythm were to remain the same for the next 10, 15, or 20 years, then we would have a predictable forecast. But with demand for electricity increasing due to electric vehicles alone, most analysts would anticipate an even higher, more accelerated rate of increase. So what would this mean for you? Obviously, the cost to power your electric vehicle will cost more as demand increases, but this scenario is essentially the same as with gas-powered vehicles. Your home, however, might be more impacted. Most single-family homes are powered by two to three different utilities. Some might be 100% electric, but most are a combination of electric and gas. Either way, as demand for electricity is almost guaranteed to increase over the coming decades as EV adoption continues, your electricity costs at home can be expected to rise too. Unless, of course, you have adapted your home to depend less, if at all, on your local utility and function as a net zero home. Now, full disclosure, this is a plug for Apricot Solar, which provides net zero homes. And the idea of a net zero home is that the home generates its own power through the use of predictable usage, guaranteed solar production, and home automation, and even contributes back to the local utility. Now, I don't want to hijack what we're getting at. If you want to learn more about our new partnership with Apricot Solar, then head on over to autoconverse.com forward slash net zero. Now, before we get too far into that conundrum, how about some headlines? The Consumer Price Index is now considered the New York Mets of the economy, always disappointing you come September. Last week's report showed that consumer prices continued their upward march last month, and the hotter-than-forecast data indicates that the Fed's aggressive interest rate hikes have not led to lower inflation just yet, and that even when the rate hikes do kick in, it's going to be a long slog back to normal inflation levels. The headline number from the report was 0.6% monthly increase in core CPI, which is considered a more accurate picture of inflation because it does not include volatile food and gas prices. The 0.6% bump is worryingly high. The headline number from the report was the 0.6% monthly increase in core CPI, which is considered a more accurate picture of inflation because it does not include volatile food and gas prices. The 0.6% bump is worryingly high and matches the same jump from August. Annual core CPI figure of 6.6% was the highest jump in 40 years. But you can't blame this on the supply chain. Economic officials had thought that inflation would ease when these epic supply chain bottlenecks let up. But now you can actually find a parking spot at the LA ports, and inflation is still rampant. 
which shows that the inflation virus has switched hosts from goods to services, infecting a broad array of economic sectors with soaring prices, such as healthcare, education, auto repair, and other services all posted price increases last month. Airfares have spiked 42.9% in the last year, and then there's shelter costs, the biggest component of the services sector, which have jumped the most on record over the past year at 6.7%. So how does this end? Well, slowly and painfully, probably, because Fed Chair Jerome Powell can't just launch a projectile to knock inflation off its course or simply ban inflation like they do in Belarus. He has to keep raising interest rates until economic growth slows down and prices cool off. And that could take a long time because services inflation is harder to tame than goods inflation. I think what this shows is that you have policies working against measures and tactics that used to have some effect on how the economy worked. But now you've got bad policies that are pretty much overriding that. Also last week, a group of countries got together and said, you know what? Oil prices are too low right now and we want to get them higher. And because they are a cartel and collectively produce more than half of the world's oil, they hatched a plan to do just that with far-reaching consequences for inflation and the Russia-Ukraine war. So what happened? Well, the group of oil-producing countries known as OPEC Plus agreed to slash production by 2 million barrels per day which is its biggest cut since the world shut down in April of 2020. And the idea is that less oil sloshing around the world will prop up prices, which many of these countries rely on for revenue. Right now, the international benchmark for crude is hovering around $93, but it has had a dizzying year. Its price shot up above $120 a barrel during the early part of the Ukraine war, but recently plunged to about $81 a barrel as fears of a global recession grew. So maybe OPEC Plus is tapping into these economic anxieties to justify the production cuts. In other news, Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist and InfoWars host, was ordered by a Connecticut jury to pay 900 yes, wait for it, and $65 million in damages to people harmed by his lies about the Sandy Hook school shooting. Those people include 14 family members of victims and an FBI agent who was a first responder at the shooting. One of those family members, Robbie Parker, whose six-year-old daughter was killed in the attack, was given $120 million, the largest single award. So what did Jones do? Well, for years, he used his massive reach on the Internet to push a conspiracy theory that the 2012 school shooting was a hoax and that the victims' families were actors. Those lies led to death threats and harassment that was directed at them. But Jones was sued for defamation in three separate lawsuits, this one and then two in Texas. Jones lost all three suits by default because he did not share necessary info during court, during court proceedings, leaving only the question of damages open for juries. So $1 billion, that's a lot to fork over. And I guess the first question we might all have is, does Jones have that? Well, most say probably not, but he did rake in tons of cash spreading lies about the Sandy Hook shooting. An employee of Jones has testified that he brought in somewhere between $100 million and a billion selling merchandise, mostly dietary supplements, books, and survival gear uh, since the massacre. In a single day in 2020, he brought in $810,000 in sales. And here's what's pretty fascinating about the story. This was all after his company, InfoWars, 
had been booted from all of the major social media platforms. YouTube, Apple, Facebook, Spotify, and Twitter all banned InfoWars in 2018, but that did not appear to dent his business. So pretty fascinating. All right, moving on into tech news. No matter how rude something someone says about you on the internet is, you can sue them, but not the platform where they said it. And that is thanks to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which broadly protects websites from liability for posts made by third parties. But the Supreme Court earlier this month has agreed to hear a case that will test just how far this goes. The case the Supreme Court will take up, which is lodged against Google over YouTube recommending videos by ISIS, that's the Islamic terrorist net, uh, group, is about what responsibility, web, what responsibility websites might have for hosting terrorist propaganda, as is a related suit in the court also agreed to hear against Twitter. So here's the backstory. Dating back to the pre-Google days of 1996, the 26-word law laid the foundation for the Internet that we now have by establishing that websites can set rules about what they allow users to post while still not being on the hook legally for user-generated content. And so this part of the law has actually been quite controversial. Who likes Section 230? Well, big tech and anyone else whose business depends on the Internet. It's the law that allows Google, social media companies, video sharing sites like YouTube and Vimeo, review-based sites like Yelp and Airbnb, or even regular old websites that allow user comments the ability to operate without getting sued into oblivion over things like defamation. But who hates it are politicians on both sides of the aisle. In fact, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have called for the repeal of Section 230. Republicans tend to ding the law for giving tech companies too much say over what speech people see online, like when Twitter booted Trump, while Democrats complain it gives tech companies a pass for allowing hate speech and disinformation. So the bottom line is the internet landscape will not change immediately, but when the court does eventually rule, it, will, it, it does have options. It could narrowly focus on whether exceptions should be made for terrorism, like the ones that already exist for copyright violations, or it could totally change life on the internet as we know it. Another tech news, TikTok chases Amazon with plans for U.S. fulfillment centers. TikTok is planning to build its own product fulfillment centers in the U.S., creating an e-commerce supply chain system that could directly challenge Amazon. The move signifies TikTok's commitment to e-commerce as its next major revenue stream following the explosive growth of its ads business. By providing warehousing, delivery, and customer service returns, TikTok's mission is to help sellers improve their operational capability and efficiency, provide buyers a satisfying shopping experience, and ensure fast and sustainable growth of TikTok of the TikTok shop. This is a really fascinating development. Amazon, obviously the king of online retail. It's hard to imagine a world today without Amazon. TikTok already is casting a shadow over Google right now. TikTok has become the go-to destination place for the younger generations, whether that's Gen Z and, and earlier. Uh, TikTok is where these folks go to get answers, to find information. Google is not your go-to place these days. And TikTok now is, now is capitalizing on that. It's going to go grow from its ad business 
and get into retail. So in one sense, I think this is great because it adds some competition. What startles me about this is that TikTok, which is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company, has already been controversial. And we just talked about how we have this bill being pushed by Florida Governor DeSantis to make it illegal for rogue states such as China to be buying farmland and real estate assets in the U.S., but there's nothing keeping a Chinese company like TikTok from basically getting its tentacles into into every part of culture and society here in the U.S., and now that's going to run up against Amazon. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword either way you look at it. And one final fun bit of news here in the technology sector. Boston Dynamics pledges not to weaponize its robots. Several robotics companies, including Boston Dynamics, are pledging not to support the weaponization of their products and are calling for others in the industry to do the same. Robots, like drones before them, have a wide range of peaceful and even life-saving uses, but can be turned into warfighting machines, too. The open letter highlights the erosion of consumer trust in robots as among the reasons not to allow them to be used as weapons. And you know what? I think this is great. This is novel and this is great. And a couple things come to mind from this. For one, I don't think it's going to do anything. We're going to end up with robotic weapons or weaponized robots. That's going to happen. And I think we don't, when we think of robots, we often think of physical exoskeleton robots, but we seldom think of algorithms and artificial intelligence those are robots too you just can't really see them what you see is the byproduct of them you see the impact and the effects that it has so in one sense robotics has has already been weaponized against us in information wars as you can clearly see but either way this is a great um what do you call this coalition if you will to not weaponize finally in tech elon musk provided Florida with Starlink satellites in response to Hurricane Ian. At the same time, he blocked Ukraine from blocked Ukraine from using Starlink in Crimea over concern that Putin could use nuclear weapons. I'm not going to get into the details of either of these. I'm focused on the headlines and here's why. I was just talking we were talking earlier in the podcast about demand for electricity going up because of electric vehicles and how that's going to impact not just the cost for electricity to power your cars, but at your home as well. Not only will the cost for electricity go up, you will always remain dependent on your utility company. So in one sense, it's really cool that SpaceX, which is providing satellite-based internet across the world in hard-to-reach communities, and with the ability to, to block that access and turn it off in places like Crimea. But this goes back to my point earlier. He who controls the resources controls the world. So Musk is in the driver's seat right now. He personally rejected a Ukrainian request to extend his satellite inner service to Crimea, fearing that an effort to retake the peninsula from Russian forces could lead to a nuclear war. You heard that right. Musk is actually rejecting and restricting internet, internet access at the fear it could lead to, we could be leading into nuclear war. That's where our world is today right now. In automotive news, Elon Musk announces start of Tesla semi-trucks production, and Pepsi is going to get the first deliveries. Tesla CEO Elon Musk said he was excited to announce the production of Tesla's fully electric semi-truck. Musk said the truck comes with 500 miles range and is super fun to drive. Tesla says on its website that the semi can drive 
can travel up to 500 miles in a single charge and recover 70% of the range in 30 minutes using dedicated chargers. It was reported earlier that electric trucks like the Semi could receive up to $40,000 incentive under pending legislation. So it's good to see some forward, uh, some development on this because there's been lots of talk about the Semi truck for years. So um, we'll keep an eye out for that. This is great. So let's end on something promising. GM, General Motors, is launching a new business to connect homes and businesses with EV chargers and energy storage. The new unit, called GM Energy, will provide battery packs, EV chargers, and software to help customers optimize charging and ride out electric grid disruptions. GM Energy aims to build on the battery and software expertise that GM has amassed in recent years to develop a new line of electric vehicles that will, in time, replace ICEs. GM Energy will offer products and services for what the company calls energy management, including hardware and software, including hardware such as batteries and solar panels, as well as hydrogen fuel cells and, importantly, cloud-based software that can link these offerings with electric vehicles and utility companies. My only comment on this, and this is funny, the podcast you're listening, this podcast you're listening to was first launched in 2018, and the theme was the future of mobility. And it was shortly after that time that GM started branding itself as a mobility company. And now what you see is they're taking the path that Tesla's been on for a while, and they're getting into the energy sector. The power grab for energy is is real and it's prominent and it's all happening right before our very eyes. Coming up. You know, the winter will be the path of least resistance. That's the one thing I do know, right? Uh, with the grace that provides the least resistance, whether that's efficiency, proficiency, you know, friction, all those things. So that will be the winner. And I don't, I don't, you know, I think lots of people are placing bets and lots of people have faith uh, in their bets that I'm making the right bet. And, and we will, we will find out. Hey folks, the following mindset tip is brought to you by Ask Auto. You know, I think the last couple of years have really shown people that easy times are not guaranteed. I know we were coming off of like a really, what I would consider like nationally a pretty easy run. It was, it was easy to, to, you know, to put up a shingle and, and set up shop and get things going and, and experience some success. Um, and the last couple of years really rocked that. And just prior to that, you know, most of us can remember what, what things were like in 2007 and 2008. And some of us even can remember what it was like in 99, <laughs> you know, and around that time, if, if you've been in business long enough and, I, I think it's really important to remind, especially the up and coming generations of entrepreneurs and marketers, um, that adversity is going to be there. And it's going to, we, we've learned that it's going to show up in a bunch of different ways. And, and the more you can prepare yourself mentally for that adversity, the better you situate yourself for capitalizing on successful moments when they arise. It's, it's metaphorical death, you know, yeah. but then you, you have to face that and you have to say to yourself, okay, how do we fix this? How do, we, how do we make ourselves okay with that catastrophic failure?
That was Jeremiah Fox during B2B Hour on Autoconversion, our company blog and website. Not to be confused with autoconverse.com, our mobility tech and connectivity blog and podcast that you are listening to. Jeremiah is a New York City restaurant owner and practitioner of jiu-jitsu. In that clip, he was offering a mindset tips for dealing with adversity. You can visit Jeremiah on the web by going to www.entrepreneurialwebradio.com. Hey, Dad, are you still looking for a car? Did you know that when you click on car ads, dealers pay for every click? But shouldn't you get paid? After all, you're the one clicking. That's why I use Ask Auto. With Ask Auto, you build rewards as you shop. Plus, Ask Auto recommends exclusive offers based on your needs. You can ask questions on cars you like and still protect your personal information. You can even set your price. Who knew car shopping could be so easy and rewarding? Ask Auto. Fast, fun, and rewarding car shopping. All right, folks, we're down to our final segment. And just a quick announcement, the final segment and some of the headlines that I was reading earlier in this episode were brought to you by Morning Brew, the free business newsletter landing in your inbox every morning. Get the daily email that makes reading the news actually enjoyable and support Autoconverse by using our referral link in the show notes or simply go to autoconverse.com forward slash brew. Stay informed and entertained for free. Morning Brew. So in August during our live show, our guests were Bill Satry and Eric Brown. And part of the reason we got together was to discuss the fate of battery electric vehicles, specifically with their disposal. So as we know, historically, when cars became totaled, obsolete, and no longer on the road, we could bring them to a junkyard and they would get squashed into a metal cube once they've been stripped of all their valuable recyclable parts. And that still occurs, but as cars have become more computerized, there's different parts in there that were never there historically. So things like microprocessor chips, for example, screens, monitors, things like that, sensors, uh, cameras now are on them, and of course, battery electric vehicles. And most of that stuff's recyclable, but battery electric vehicles present a problem because they're not quite as recyclable as we might have been led to believe. And the question is what to do with them. So anyway, Bill and Eric had come on. We, were ha- we came on to the show back in August to have a conversation on that subject. And I am going to fill you in on that, that particular conversation in a couple of different episodes. But before we had that conversation on the disposal of them, we got into just the general push for EV to EVs altogether, the adoption of EVs, and the surprising return rate of EV owners going back to combustion engine vehicles. So here are the highlights from that preliminary discussion. And again, in a couple of weeks, we will get the other discussion about the disposal and the challenges of disposing of battery electric vehicles. But enjoy this final clip here of our conversation about the push for EVs and the surprising return rate back to combustion engine vehicles. Just to kick things off, Bill, let's have you take the stage. What do you think of this push coming from some authority? which I, I identify as World Economic Forum, pushing so hard for electric vehicles and now moving the goalposts, as I said. Do you, th- do you think that's what's happening? Are they moving the goalposts? Do you see that? 
Yeah, there. You know, I keep watching the pattern, and it's control, control, control. And I mean, I love this idea of electric cars, but like they're everywhere now. You you can't go to a stoplight without seeing three Teslas facing you, right, or aside from you. But the fact that that Tesla could be shut down at any given time in the middle of a freeway or be shut down by not getting power is a little concerning. I can keep my own gas cans here at home and I can drive anywhere I want. So the fact that there's just this creep of control going on, I think that's a little concerning. Okay. So refueling, recharging the car, which has been a concern that's, that's been a hindrance for people to go with electric cars but how does that tie into what you say control? How is that a control uh, mechanism? Well, let's say the government only wants you, they know you go back to fourth, the work is 20 miles a day and you're putting on a hundred miles a day. Well, all of a sudden they can restrict the amount of miles that you could go in a day pretty easily. I would think they could restrict your electricity. They could restrict where you want to charge. If they want to cut down on traffic. Let's say in LA, they could pretty easily restrict uh, where you're going, or they could give you a tax incentive to stay home on a positive side. So I just watch the control. Anytime somebody can control a plug, uh, you got me, right? Like I'm starting to say, well, that may not be your greatest thing in the world. I would just put forth that there's probably a lot of examples like that. I mean, we already have that now with our, our electrical power supply in our, you know, in our residences, unless you have your own ability to generate power, which technically you can only do if you coordinate with the local authorities to give power to, you know, to the grid. Um, but I do think you touch on a good point, uh, which is, you know, what, what are the control mechanisms? What's maybe what's the, what's the real aim behind all this? What I alluded to was first it was CO2 emissions. Now it's raw materials. So Eric, coming from that standpoint, do you see the, as I say, the goalposts moving? Do you see the correlation there? Um, and do you also, as I just showed, do you believe that we have, we seem to have, we do not seem to have a, a, a too much demand for the raw materials that we have? Yeah, so I'd probably break this down a little <laughs> uh, different than most do. I just see this all as human behavior um, in that, you know, first it was about CO2, right? And then you, and then suddenly about a year ago, the Chinese announced that they're able to convert CO2 into starch and they're building machines to do it. And I believe we're building one in Texas now. Uh, and so, oh, wait a minute, we may have a solution to the CO2 problem. In fact, CO2 is a form of energy. We might actually be able to convert it out of the air into energy uh, and provide cheap energy to places that, you know, don't currently have access to it. Um as well as a variety of other things, um, suddenly uh, I need to find a new reason um, to stay in the EV business, right? I need to find a new reason um, because I'm currently uh, paid and or financed or supported uh, for this cause for, you know, to solve a problem. Well, if the problem gets solved, I've got to find another one or I've got to find another reason it's a problem. So I guess I've become a cynic in my, in my, later years, but it just seems to me that, you know, as soon as you set up these infrastructures where people are making money to solve a problem, then that problem uh, will, ne will never be fixed. 
Uh, I think we see this every day in Washington, D.C. They have an incentive to have problems so they can raise money. Fixing problems doesn't raise money. So um, I just become a cynic about all of it. And so if somebody else fixes the problem, then I have to find another reason why I need to exist. And so I move the goalpost. Yeah, I think that's what I think that's what we're seeing now. Do you think that the push for EVs is a good uh, is a good direction in general for the automobile business? <laughs> Not that we can stop it, but do you- so. So the answer is yes and no. It depends on where you are in the automobile business. If you're in the service business, you're not going to get as much. If you're, uh, you know, if you're making carburetors, probably not. So, so the I, I don't I don't know if there's a really an answer to that. It 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 is what it is, and and for whatever reason, the forces that will benefit by going electric have the momentum behind them. They have the investments. They have the political favor. Um, you know, that's likely to change as well. So I I don't know if there's really an answer to that. I don't know if we know, actually, we don't know what the impact of millions and millions of batteries, you know, being stacked up in landfills going to be any more than we knew what the impact of aerosols was going to be when we put those on the shelf. So um, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm not that smart. I think that's fair. We're going to get into that a little bit later in our discussion, folks, uh, which is, you know, the disposal of of cars in general, which now includes these massive battery packs. And as Eric just alluded to, they're going to be, you know, what's going to be happening with all these battery packs as as cars go obsolete. Uh, You know, Toyota, I I think I I just put an article out about about this on Ward's Auto. Toyota is really pushing for hydrogen fuel cell technology and. Some people argue that they're doing that because they've fallen behind on the the innovation race with electric cars, uh, with battery electric vehicles, and so they're pushing for hydrogen fuel cell. But I see hydrogen fuel cell gaining popularity in large trucks. Uh, in, in in large trucks, the, I think the biggest challenge with hydrogen fuel cell is the explosiveness of hydrogen and the danger of storing it and transporting it. Uh, that seems to be the major issue. But as far as cleanliness and efficiency, hydrogen I, seems to exceed anything else we have today. So I would just, I say that because it seems to me the idea of, of erasing, eliminating gas-powered vehicles in place of, of electric doesn't, like you say, it doesn't actually solve a, the, a long-term problem. It just solves a short-term problem of what we were been lot been i think the the rhetoric has been carbon emissions um, but as i just laid out there gas-powered cars are 99 percent cleaner than they ever were before so they're not even emitting that that much carbon well, yeah you used to have the oh we've got to go electric because we can't get the mpgs we want well suddenly while well, we're figuring out the mpgs and you know it goes back to your question is it a good thing or bad thing it is what it is because we neither no one here on in this podcast or anybody watching knows, you know, what technology is going to come forward in six months or six years that changes the equation. Um, so this is just sort of the path of human behavior. Yeah. You know, I talk a lot about the path of least resistance and, you know, the winner will be the path of least resistance. That's the one thing I do know. All right. Uh, with the grace that provides the least resistance, whether that's efficiency, proficiency, 
you know, friction, all those things. So that will be the winner. And I don't, I don't, you know, I think lots of people are placing bets and lots of people have faith uh, in their bets that I'm making the right bet. And, and we will, we will find out. And in my day of technology and studying data and big data, you will find there are a tremendous amount of early adapters. And when it comes to electric cars, it was trendy, cool. First, it was the Prius. And now if you own a Tesla and you own a company, it's almost expected of you to have some type of vehicle like that as being a forefront or a lead uh, uh, maybe a leader or lead thinker in your in your group or your your peers. So we see a lot of these Teslas with uh, movers and shakers. When you look at uh, data, there's a lot of people that that drive them not necessarily because they need them, but they're pretty cool. They're they're actually quite or have been yeah. quite trendy, if that makes sense. Oops. What's interesting about that is most people you'll hear that, you know, in fact, I was hearing it earlier today that while driving electric cars and a much better experience for the consumer, there's less moving parts. It doesn't break down. But yet uh, I was just in a, a research uh, meeting a couple of weeks ago and it's a bunch of manufacturers. And, you know, a couple of things that jumped out at me was the the, you know, return to ice uh, for electric owners was uh, almost 50 percent. And yeah. And, and among hybrid owners is about 25, 26%, if I recall correctly. No kidding. Uh, and nobody's talking about how many people buy these electric cars and then replace okay. them with ice. Uh, so My, that's going to create a drag on adoption, certainly. Yeah, there's not this loyalty that we were expecting. If you talk to my daughter who works for a manufacturer, luxury car dealer, she takes them in trade quite a bit and not old ones. I'm talking about one and two year old Tesla's 10,000, 20,000 miles. And the people will be very, they'll enjoy the fact that they were getting this great car with performance, but some of the ergonomics of the car were, were in question, but I, I was amazed on how many she would take on trade, not to say that there's that many more out there and the, those people duplicate, but the, attrition rate is probably not what you might think it might be the attrition rate of staying with electric vehicles staying with the vehicle i think it becomes real fun i have neighbors that have them you you certainly make a lot of friends right you're not making them at the gas station you're making them wherever you're meeting people it's a great talking point i really think that the car serves a, a good purpose but I don't know if you travel through state or if you want to head up to Canada and you got to plan a trip across the country. It, it may not be the greatest car in the world to, to uh, possibly do those type of trips because of the many stops you've got to make to recharge. Well, I think, you know, this is, of course, anecdotal. But another issue is I have a friend that bought uh, electric vehicles and checked with the condo building to see if there was a charger. Sure enough, there's a charger. Great. I can buy this and I can charge it in my, my you know, parking garage and, and they buy the car, you know, and they bring it home and suddenly they realize, well, wait a minute, this charging station is first generation uh, and it's going to take, you know, 12 hours to charge my car. And Oh, by the way, there's, eight other people wanting to charge their car, you know, and we have three charging stations or I don't know if it was eight or how many more, but they can never get a full charge on that car. And in fact, 
you know, they've taken to driving, you know, to, to public charging stations and paying for that, that charging, even though in their HOA, they were paying for the charger in the building, but that, but it just, so these are the sort of educational components, you know, that, that, that it's the, it's the learning curve, right? Oh, it's a charger. Aren't all chargers alike? You know, don't all our charge, you know, and, and the answer is no, right? Because we think, oh, it must be like the gas pumps. They all work the same way. Well, chargers don't. So um, now they're sitting, you know, on a, on a, I think they had a three-year lease with a car they don't want. Um, so going back to an ice engine. So. Yeah. Well, with manufacturers all setting goals to have no ICE vehicles by 2030, 2035, it makes me wonder what's going to happen to the infrastructure of charging, you know, of um, gas stations around, around the country. I mean, that's 10 years from now. It's, you know, over the next 10 years, it's, it's kind of a long time when it, when it comes to technologies like this. So yeah, I think it's safe to say we're heading to a very, very different, different world. You know, a lot of those gas stations and just because we're involved with them in terms of marketing our product, uh, they're moving to uh, uh, putting out charging stations in, in, into the gas stations themselves. Right. Um, okay. It, you know, there's some logistical issues with that, as you might imagine. Uh, yeah. Everything from, is that power available to how do I manage, you know, the, the average stop at a gas uh, pump today is about four minutes. So when that becomes 40 minutes, how do I manage that as a gas station? Now, on the other hand, as a gas station, it creates new revenue opportunities because if I'm sitting there 40 minutes, I'm a lot more likely to buy a soda and chips and, and maybe rent a movie from Shell's uh, entertainment system uh, and pay for Wi-Fi access while I'm sitting there, right? So there's lots of uh, ancillary revenue opportunities for the gas stations that they don't have with gasoline, but there's a lot of logistical hoops to jump through too. But aren't there concerns about having electrical charging uh, infrastructure right. blended in with gas with gas stations? Aren't there like, I, danger risks there? Yeah, and I'm probably not qualified to answer the question because I'm not that deeply involved in it. But I've not heard that as a as a as a mm. concern. All right, that is a wrap. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure you text the keyword AutoConverse to 855-766-7585. We will send you a link to get subscribed to our YouTube channel. And then every time we go live on the show, we will also send you a link to have the live feed right there on your phone. It's one of the best ways to get more dialed into what we do. If you like what we do, definitely tell a friend or two. We do not really participate in social media so much per se uh, we don't really run ads so we really depend on you as our listeners to leave us a pot you know leave us a review on your podcast app and share it with friends i share podcasts with people all the time and not to promote the podcast because there's information in there that i want to share with somebody so i'm constantly sharing content and we would love it if you do the same here for us if you are a Doge holder, well, to the moon, the Dogecoin today is at exactly $0.06, cents, more than a 4% drop from a week ago where it had held for more than a month at just over $0.06. Cents. 
But Dogecoin is not the only cryptocurrency going nowhere right now. After a hot inflation report tripped up stocks late last week, they mounted a historic comeback throughout the trading session led by banks and energy companies. The Dow climbed more than 1,300 points from its intraday low, and the S&P said goodbye to a six-day losing streak. Well, the Doge, point, the Doge will make a comeback too. That's all for today, folks. We'll see you next week. Ciao. This is Audiburst Media.